Coming to you from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I am Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we have a special treat. <laughs> Jen Hatmaker is the celebrated New York Times bestselling author of For the Love and of Mess and Moxie. She is also the host of the award-winning For the Love podcast. Jen and I have come together a few times to talk about the serious stuff of race. Last year, our White Women's Toxic Tears Facebook Live went viral and sparked conversations across the nation. This year, in light of January 6th and the decisive moves of GOP state houses across the nation, especially in Texas where Jen lives, to whittle back voting rights, and to ban teaching of race in our schools, I asked Jen, my sister friend, to jump into the fray with me and have an honest conversation about race and repair in America. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. Everybody, welcome. The two of us are delighted to see you. We're delighted to have you join us this evening for an important, a challenging conversation, one that Lisa and I have had behind closed doors, and now we want to have in front of open doors with you. And so I'm so happy to see you, my friend. Lisa Sharon Harper is with us, and I want to give the very first shout out to your new profile pic. Gentlemen, she's available. (laughs) She's smart. (laughs) <laughs> you are too much i know but i'm serious i don't know who took that picture but okay hi Fania. <laughs> i was like dang i'm so glad to see you really i wish it was in person i wish we weren't doing this virtually but here we are and so for everybody watching, we'll just do a quick little intro of ourselves, just in case you somehow stumbled on this or in case maybe one of your friends posted the link and you aren't familiar with either one of us. I'm Jen Hatmaker, and this is my friend Lisa Sharon Harper, and I am a writer and I am a podcaster and a speaker. I'm a mom and a friend and a sister and a daughter. And Lisa and I became friends as we intersected somewhere along the line inside the work of racial equality and justice. And this was years ago. Actually, Lisa, I think our first time meeting, wasn't it in uh, Montgomery? Yep, it was 2015. Yeah, that's right. We were at EJI, Brian Stevenson's incredible organization in Montgomery, really being taught by him for a couple of days. What a master. What a master. What a treasure. 
He's literally an amazing human being. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've said this to so many people that I, it's hard to put Brian into words, but being under his leadership was really profound for me. And we did some profound work together that weekend. We dug dirt at lynching sites that later became a part of the monument, the memorial. And and then since Lisa and I have just been friends and I've sat under her leadership and teaching now for seven years. And I've read every word she's written. And I follow her everywhere she is willing to be online. And we've done some projects together and some hosted some conversations together. And it's time for another one. And Lisa pinged me. And she's like, it's time for another one. And I'm like, you are so right. Lisa, can you give a quick high level overview about who you are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I am the president and founder of Freedom Road. Freedom Road is a consulting group that really is dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation so that we don't have to revisit these conversations every 20 years. We have an opportunity to move forward. I'm also a playwright. I was a playwright before I was ever a theologian or an activist, but I'm also those things. So I'm like a jack of all, or what do you call it? Jaquina (laughs) of all trees. You just made up a word and I like it. Yeah, of all traits. And but more than that, my my vocation is really to push for justice in the world. That's my vocation. So I do it every way possible. Yes, you do. You're a faithful leader. In in the background, you probably hear my dog. (laughs) Just give the dog a quick little chase. She is determined to be heard. Sorry. Watchers and listeners, she's brand new. She's brand new to Lisa today. Today Today. is her first day to own this dog. And so if at any point you need to pick her up and just put her in the frame, I'm not going to be mad. Do it, please. Yeah, we need this. I'm going to do it. Yeah, we need, you know, we need dogs. Okay, she's now she's not coming. Isn't that funny? So she'll come and then I'll. Okay, when she comes and she wants to make a, a, a show when you do it. Everybody listen. We're here right now. For some profound reasons, you and I, all of us really see the power of race rearing its head in our world right now. And Lisa is one of the leaders that I trust the most to have these conversations with as we work toward equality and ultimately toward justice. And so I don't know if any of you saw it last year. Was it last year, Lisa, that you and I did White Women's Toxic Tears? Yeah, it was. Last year, Lisa and I did a live stream conversation around White Women's Toxic Tears. And it was really powerful. And it was seen uh, just, I can't even know how many times, and sparked a lot of really meaningful conversations. And so now Lisa has a new book coming out next year. I've already had the opportunity to read it. Thank you, Lisa, for always sending me your stuff in advance. And so your brain is centered on these thoughts already. And so you and I have decided to come together again and have this conversation in front of our communities. Let's just jump in because just this year, 2021, right? Obviously, we all watched in horror as white nationalists attempted to steal the 2020 election by stopping the confirmation of the vote. And at least five people were killed that day. It was not without consequence. And then, of course, since January 6th, we have seen voter suppression 
going through the roof. And of course, that I am feeling this so deeply here in my state of Texas, where we're the headline of all the national news right now, all the legislation that has been introduced to roll back by voting rights. Plus, of course, if you're in the faith space like we are at all, you've also seen white churches waging war on critical race theory. And also, of course, here in Texas and, and beyond, our school districts, mm-hmm. banning CRT and intersectionality from being taught in our schools. Racism is ruling our world right now. And we need to get clear about what's happening. So, Lisa, mm-hmm. when you look around, what do you see right now? Can you break this down for us? Well, first, I just want to acknowledge you are a warrior queen. Can I just say that? You are seriously a warrior queen. And last year, you were part of our ally tour because you are a true ally. And I, today, you are manifesting ally you are, or really accomplice because you are sick. Like, you are, you're sitting here coughing. Like, you're like sniffling and sneezing. And yet, you are here because now is the time to have the conversation. So I just think it is. it's important that we acknowledge, I want to acknowledge that you didn't cancel and a lot of other people really would have canceled, but you said, no, mm-hmm. we need to have the conversation now. Yeah. So I just want to say thank you for that. And also acknowledge you really are like, you really are a warrior queen. And thank you. Like you might've been an actual warrior queen. So anyway, <laughs> so, I like that. It's true. So I will break it down. Yeah. Since January 6th, 18 states have enacted 30 new laws that restrict and suppress the right to vote. In total, 48 states have introduced voter suppression laws that are at some stage moving through the process in their states. In short, we are now, this is not an exaggeration. This is for real. Okay, the dog is coming. (laughs) Sorry. But this is for real. We are now worse off than we were before the Voting Rights Act. Why? Because at least before the Voting Rights Act, Jim Crow voter suppression was mostly limited to the South. But now it is in every corner of the United States of America. Only two states have not introduced voter suppression laws. Y'all, like literally that chills me to the bone and it should chill all of us. Another like example of that is the Texas legislature, right? Passed a law that will effectively suppress votes among people of color throughout the state. And last week, my state, Pennsylvania, GOP legislators subpoenaed, I kid you not, subpoenaed personal information such as driver's license numbers, social security numbers, addresses of all Pennsylvania voters. Why do they need this? And that information is going to be held by a third party. And who knows who this third party is? So the right to vote is actually under attack in the United States. Now, Senator Bob Casey from my state made it plain. He said, Voter suppression laws are being passed for one purpose, to maintain white power. He's a white guy. He said that. 
because he wanted people to know this is what is motivating that. There's nothing more. There is not any um, voter fraud that's happening. Nothing that they've been able to point to. How many audits have been have happened already on the last election? And yet still 48 states plus now get this plus what better way to maintain white power than to ban teaching about it from schools? Okay, so that's where you get the critical race theory piece from. So according to educationweek.org, as of August 26th, 27 states have introduced bills or altered policy to put a lid on teaching critical race theory. In the classroom. Now, critical race theory, I just came off of a really great conversation, by the way, um, over at Red Letter Christians. So if you didn't see that, you definitely want to head over there about critical race theory and why. Can you high level that, like, just for people who are going, I feel confused about what that is because it's so inflamed in the media. Can you just give like a synopsis of what it really is? Absolutely. So, okay. So critical race theory is, is very simple. In short, with a theory that was developed in the halls of academia in the 1970s by a guy named Derek Bell, right? And also Charles Lawrence III and Kimberly Crenshaw and a bunch of other people in the halls of academia, particularly in the legal, in legal classrooms, right? So the basic theory goes like this. Race is a legal construct. This legal construct shapes the course of whole people groups' lives. That's basically it. That's the theory. <laughs> Some people the theory. would say that's a fact. It's like, really? Like, I really literally couldn't believe that was the theory. Now, the thing is that back at the time when this theory was being developed in the 1970s, it was actually a new thought. Mm-hmm. Up to that point, the legal realm, like that, the realm was basically, it just didn't, it didn't include a racial analysis. It didn't include an analysis of the impact of racial laws. So progressives Mm. were really fighting. They were saying, we need to be fighting for Marxist theory. Progressives were doing that back then because the issue is economics, right? But what Derek Bell said, he said, no, Marx lived in an all white place. So race would not be a part of his analysis. We don't live in an all-white place. We live in a racialized nation. And race has been with us since before the founding of our nation, hundreds of years before the founding of our nation. And it is still with us. It is so deeply embedded. You cannot extricate race from the United States of America. That was Derek Bell's theory in particular. So when we talk about critical race theory, right now you have, was it 27 states that are rising up saying, no teaching about race. Well, why right. would you teach about race? In order to maintain white supremacy. That's right. Why. Right. Exactly. So these are dire days. And this is no joke. And I told you this when you and I were on the phone a couple of weeks ago. You called all this a couple of years ago. You and I were talking and you were like, this is what's coming next. Voting rights are going to be rolled back. And I was like, no, not in this modern America. There's no way that's a bridge too far. And yet here we are. And so, Lisa, 
obviously I mentioned this at the top, but I read your next book and it's incredible. And it's called Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Um, Because you are a repairer. You are a reconstructor at your core. You are always not just tearing down, but rebuilding. It's, it's one of your most admirable traits as a leader. So in Fortune, you traced 10 generations of your family's story on American soil, going all the way back to like 1682, in order to find the moments when race broke us. And then figure out how we can fix it. It's really profound work, incredible work, honestly. So when you look at what this mess that we're in right now, what did you learn as you gathered all that information? It was a ton of research. This is well-researched. This is deeply historical. What did you learn that can speak into this moment? Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, like, it was a lot. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there's a, a lot. Heavy list. I mean, it's funny because I spent 30 years researching my family's story. And when you get deep into the stories, it's hard then to kind of tease out the lessons because you get into the story of the people. But if I were to say I learned four things, right, from this research, this is what I would say. I'd say, number one, that there were major decision points in the course of our nation's history that got us where we are. There were points of decision, points when people could have chosen left, they could have chosen right, they could have, yeah. they could have chosen toward freedom for all, they could have chosen flourishing for all, or they could have chosen to clamp down and try to protect their own power. By and large, second thing I learned, the meta-narrative, the larger narrative of our nation, the ones that we rehearse on, on holidays, the one that's taught to us by in our classrooms, it writes out the details of how those decisions were made and for what purpose. And by doing this, the meta narrative serves to deaden our nerves. You know, the g- good people can go about celebrating the 4th of July because we don't understand the implications of that holiday on Native Americans. We don't understand that the 4th of July, as Frederick Douglass once said, is not my holiday. Because when you instituted this new United States of America, in that very first Congress, you also entrenched the enslavement of my family. Right? So by doing that, by writing out the details, What we do is we deaden ourselves to those details and make it possible for us to ultimately protect white domination because we don't do anything because we continue waving the flag on the 4th of July. Each of those decisions, the third point is they each had huge, I mean, monumental repercussions on the course of marginalized families, not just for one generation, but for every single generation that came after. And then the fourth point I would say, a lesson that I learned is it is possible though for us to choose another way. Still, it is not too late to choose another way to live together in the world. Repentance is possible. Healing is possible. Resilience is possible. These are our stories. 
You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Sometimes it feels like our world is falling apart. We watched on January 6th as Americans attempted to end democracy. We watched throughout 2021 as state houses across the country have attempted to move America back past the time when we had the Voting Rights Act, back to the days when voter suppression was the rule of law. We've watched that state houses have banned teaching on race. I wrote Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World, and How to Repair It All, because I believe in the power of family story to clarify what happened to bring us to this brink, to help us grasp the human cost of public policies enacted in moments like these. I wrote it to help us to do the real work of repairing what race broke in the world. 30 years of research, 10 generations of my family, from 1682 to right now, one family, the roots of race, the degradation, the resistance and rebellion, the rising, the calls to truth-telling, repair, forgiveness, how race broke the world, and how to repair it all. Fortune drops on February 8, 2022. Pre-order and join our advanced community now. You'll get access to a digital copy of Fortune in the month of November. Plus, you'll be able to join a community of people who are studying the book through the month of November and part of December in order to prepare for the book's launch in February 2022. Pre-order Fortune now. And join our advanced community at lisasharonharper.com backslash fortune. back to that first one that you mentioned, because you said there were clear decision points in the course of our nation's history that got us to where we are today. Can you parse that out a little bit? What kind of decision points are you talking about? Yeah, so we're talking about the decisions made by colonies to transform from indentured servitude to slavery to racialize it. My own ancestor, Fortune, who the book is named after, yeah, there when they were working out those original laws, her body absorbed those laws' wrath. And those laws shaped the course of my family's future forever. We're we're talking about the decision made by the radical, read progressive, right? Republicans, this is back in the 1800s. Right. The same party, the Republican Party, is actually the one that passed the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment right after the Civil War. Well, that same party, mostly Northerners, mind you, made a deal 
with the South in 1877, when there was like a question about who won the presidential election, they said, we'll pull out our troops from the South and let you deal with your race problem in your way if you let our guy take the presidency. So that deal was made. And right after that, South Carolina legislature turned around and banned Black women and men from working in any other jobs other than domestic work and in the fields. Well, that directly connected and impacted my own ancestors' lives and futures because they were in South Carolina. The same thing happened in states all across the South. And we're talking about also about the choice that Nixon made back in the 1970s to declare war on drugs, right? So he did that not to declare war on drugs. As his legislative advisor confessed to in the 1990s, he did that in order to give him reason to go in and snatch his political foes and put them in prison, Black men and hippies. Right. Because they were going to be the voters that came against him. Right. So he took them off the street. He broke up families. It caused chaos in those communities. Why did he do that? Because civil rights had made black people too strong and had made the political voting rights act made our vote too strong. So that was their decision to pump black communities full of heroin in order to justify going in and breaking up our families and Reagan's decision later to infiltrate our communities with crack which he did. My own uncle died of a heroin overdose in the 1970s. My grandmother died at the hands of a crack addict. One block from where I am right now in South Philly. So the decisions that our legislators, our policymakers, our voters have made have directly impacted people groups Mm futures at fortunes it's daunting it's daunting to hear you lay it out like that and of course you're just touching down this is just a matter of historical record for anybody who would want to ever learn it's there it's just plain on its face Mm -hmm. and the majority of us obviously weren't taught this yeah clearly i wasn't and so it's really it is daunting to wade through and to have a genuine and sincere reckoning with our country's history and what it has meant generation to generation. Because of course, I appreciate you always stringing the through line because, you know, there's this common reaction. Well, it was a long time ago. I didn't own any, I didn't yeah. own any, and I'm not racist. I have a black neighbor. And so I appreciate your dedication to show that it really is kind of an unbroken thread from generation to generation that the enormous disadvantage those actual laws, those actual choices had on bodies, families, children, schools, neighborhoods, regions. And so I guess my question here is because I look to you for this all the time because you always bring it hard. Where's the hope here? Is there hope here? Wow. Wow. I'll tell you what, that's it's a really challenging question right now because when yeah, you look around at the world, there's a lot of reason not to have hope, right? Yes, I mean, there like, is. seriously, not only that, but like climate change, right? So there's everything. But honestly, I find hope in this that repair is possible because this is a man made problem. Mm. This can also be a fixable problem. 
Poof. This is not something that just came poof. We don't know where it came from. We did this, which means we can undo it. I've come to understand the next leg of our work must be about repairing what race broke in our world. And and in the book, I, I take the last whole three chapters to point the way toward repairing all that race broke in the world. And they're they're named after the three things I think we need to do. We need to do some truth telling. And actually that truth telling is really broken down into three parts, truth seeking, truth listening, and truth telling. That's good, right? And then we need to do some reparation. I mean, actual reparation. Do you realize that people of African descent in the United States are the only ones who have never, out of all the people who've been oppressed here, who have never had any form of reparation given to us? None. And then finally, the last piece is forgiveness. And I know that's going to get some people like, forgiveness, what? Like, what you talking about? Mm-hmm. People, I'm not forgiving them. Well, the thing is that forgiveness is ultimately about our wellness. Yes, that's right. It is ultimately about releasing us from needing our oppressor to get what we need. It is says, I release you from your debt to me after you pay your reparations. Hello, somebody. <laughs> but there are parts of the reparations that just cannot be repaid, right? That's so right. Those parts that cannot be repaid. I release you from that. But then we turn to God and we say, God, ante up. And then we seek our own healing. I want to go back to reparations because this is not a word that is centered in this conversation right now. It's not a concept that is centered and it should be. I think the very first thing you ever said to me, Lisa, in 2015, the first sentence, you walked right up to me and you grabbed me by the shoulders and you were like, Jen Hatmaker, you said something about reparations online. That's the first thing you ever said to me. And I did. I'd called for reparations a few years ago. And I think my first introduction maybe to this idea of reparations, because frankly, I didn't really even understand what that meant. Again, not taught. This was not a part of our kind of common U.S. historical vernacular. was when I read Ta-Nehisi's piece in The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations. And of course, he's he's a brilliant He's so brilliant and he lays things out in such clear terms. And I remember reading that going, this is clear. I don't think I understood that we had such a profound and meaningful history of reparations, not just in the whole world, which we do, but also in the United States. Like, this is a real thing. This isn't invented. Everybody's gotten it except for us. Everybody. I want to talk more about this because I... My sense is that this is not well understood, that it's something something maybe the Black community is clamoring for, when in fact, this is a healing and a justice initiative the entire world has undertaken many, 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 many times. Can you explain it better? And as you are, somewhere in here, can you also explain what is the difference between reparations and like affirmative action? Okay. Oh, that's, oh, I love that question. I love it. Okay. So let me start with that actually, because that's, it's actually simple. Affirmative action. It works within the structures that we have in order to make sure, and it, it recognizes that people are starting from way, way behind. And it also recognizes that a diversity of perspectives and worldviews are needed 
for all of us to be well in our society, to do better in our society. So affirmative action affirms the need to pour resources in, in order to make sure that people can not even start at the same line, but catch up, right? So it's really about helping people to catch up because that's fair in a democracy. But affirmative action does not even attempt to make restitution for wrong right. done. It doesn't identify a wrong done and say, all right, forgive me. Here is, I am now giving you this back. I'm giving you this in order to repair our relationship, which was broken. And that, that actually brings me to my core understanding of what I've come to understand is the core understanding of reparation is that re reparation is ultimately about the repair of the relationship that was broken because of the oppression. Now, we may have never actually had good relationship, right? So it's not like we started with good relationship and then, because it, it all really started with sin. It started and like the actual break happened with sin against people of African descent, really people in Africa. What I would say is that reparation is about the repair of the moment that first break happened. So we have to go back and we have to ask, when did it break and how? For example, in South Africa, I was sitting at a dinner table with one of the leaders of a really awesome group there called The Warehouse. If I have warehouse watchers on here right now, please give a shout out. Hello. They're my favorite people in South Africa. I was sitting um, with their leader, Craig Stewart, and his family um, over dinner. And we began to talk about, well, what would reparations look like in South Africa? And all of the typical questions began to come up. Well, who do you, how do you determine who gets them? It, it, would they have to go back this far or that far? Is it all black people or is it only the Kosa people? Or the, in America, it's the, is it all black people in America or is it only people who have been enslaved? And how can we prove that? How do you prove? These are, I believe, the smoke screens that come up. Mm -hmm. The real question, it, it honestly it was like a big bing over my head when I, like a light bulb, when I was sitting there with them. And this is when I got clarity. What the real question is not who should get reparations. The real question is what needs to be repaired? Hmm, that's good. What needs to be repaired and then repair it? And what needs to be repaired first and fundamentally is the relationship between the two parties. When Europeans landed on that Southern Cape in, in Cape Town and claimed that land for their own fort in order to be a, a, a middle point between their journey to India when they had merchants going all the way to India. When they claimed that land, which was the land of the Kosa people, they looked at those people and they said, they're not civilized, so they don't deserve, they're not called by God to exercise dominion on this land. We are. That was the point of the break. The point of the break was in the snatching of God's call to exercise dominion, which is given to every single human being. When they failed to recognize that, when they failed to bow, and submit themselves to the leadership of the people on that land, the relationship was broken. So now 
the relationship must be healed. And the way to heal it is to go to the people themselves and do what David did in 2 Samuel 21. He accepted accountability for the actions, not of his actions, but of Saul's action, the king who came before him. He wasn't even there. He had nothing to do with it. And yet he owned it because as the leader of his nation, it was in his court now. It was his responsibility. If he didn't heal it, nobody could. So what David did was he said, what do you say that we should do to make things well for you? To the people who came to say, uh, we got a bone to pick. Saul tried to kill all our people. And then you know what he did? They told him and it was costly. Yeah. But then he did it without asking a question. So what does it look like? What does reparations look like for us? It looks like listening to what the people who have had the oppression say it will take to make things well for them and then doing it. That's great. And anybody who's listening, if you feel new to this to the conversation of reparations, I really encourage you just just do a pretty simple search on what governments have made reparations in history and what did that look like and why. And you'll see a real precedence for this particular form of justice. There is a precedence for it. And it's always it's founded and it's just and it's good and it's right. And it's right here, too. Let me, yeah. let me just add this very quickly, because I, I think that this is important. I didn't even see this in scripture. Somebody pointed it out to me. But when Jesus goes into the town and goes to, to Zacchaeus, who's up in the tree, and says, yo, Zacchaeus, I want to talk with you. I want to oh, hang yeah. out with you, right? And Zacchaeus and him, they go back, they have lunch. We have no idea what Jesus said. But what yeah. we do know, we know that the impact of spending one afternoon with Jesus was that Zacchaeus went back and paid reparation. He did. Great example. He did. He paid reparation to his, to the people who he had been bilking through the tax mm. system. That's deep. It's a great example. Mm-hmm. And more, he went above and beyond. Yes. Good one, lady. See? Yeah, <laughs> just a pretty face. Thank you. <laughs> a lot going on in that head. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. We're living in the kinds of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do, when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. 
Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. Okay, let me ask you this, because it's one thing to call for our national leadership to make reparations, which is the right and the good thing to do. How do just people, how do just people begin the process of repairing, which obviously is what reparations means, repairing what race broke in the world right now? What about the rest of us? Such a great, that's a, that is like, isn't that like the question, right? I think the thing, what was, what's really interesting is that if we all just waited for our nations to do reparations, people would suffer a lot longer. I want to turn again to my friends in South Africa because that same group, the warehouse, they're so deeply biblical that they took reparations seriously. And what they began to do, they were convinced by the scripture, this is a biblical value. This is something God calls us to. And it also is incredibly important in scripture. It weaves its way through the entirety of scripture. It's so important that what we are now going to do is we're going to counsel our white Christians in churches all over South Africa, particularly in Cape Town, because that's where it's based, to have difficult conversations with their sons and daughters. Because they live on land that was stolen by them, by their ancestors, or not even by them, but by somebody else's ancestors, and now they're living on it. But they had difficult conversations about inheritance, whether their children were going to inherit that land or whether or not that land, upon the death of the family, of the mother and father, would go back to the indigenous people. And so they began to have those conversations, and people throughout the warehouse network, began to commit to honoring the true call to steward the land of the indigenous people of that land. And so who would inherit it would be the indigenous people. Now, that's one way to do it. There are other ways to do it. And that's not even waiting for government. That's you making a decision. Sure. When a denomination is asking the question of what it does with all of those properties, right? The properties that are now going vacant. That's right. Across the country because people are no longer actually entering into churches. They're doing church in other ways now. What do they do with those properties? Do they sell it and use the money for themselves? Or do they begin to ask the question, And this takes the truth telling, this takes the truth seeking. Do they begin to ask the question, what was our part in the break? And then use the assets they have in order to repair what was broken. That's another way you can do it. I mean, one way, look, we have Fortune coming out and Fortune is going to be having um, this awesome, really awesome Black Fortune Month. February 2022 is going to be Black Fortune Month. It's normally Black History Month and we are declaring it Black Fortune. <laughs> because this is the opportunity for us to go deep into the history, to understand how those legal choices, those political choices that were made impacted people of African descent, in particular in America, and how we can fix it. 
So we're going to be, we're starting an advanced community on the book Fortune this fall. It starts, I think the first week of November and goes all the way through December 10th. I think it's six weeks all in all. And that will give you early access to the book, duper release in February. It'll give you a walkthrough of the book by me. I'm going to literally be walking through all the chapters and giving sneak peeks at different things that are coming up. And also you'll get some tips on how to investigate your own family story because I've been doing this for 30 years now. So I want to pass this on. And I'm actually a, a huge believer that as much as we understand the truth of our own family's story, right? Then we are, we ourselves are rewriting the history to be more accurate. That's because good. no longer are we dependent on that meta narrative, right? That dumbs us down and makes us anesthetized and able just to support white supremacy. Now we begin to understand, even as a person of European descent, why did my family come here? Hmm. What were they fleeing? Usually they were sure. fleeing something. Sure. Were they fleeing poverty? Were they fleeing oppression? Why did they come? And when they got here, how did they fit into this whole racial schema? What was their part? Did they participate in the entrenchment of white supremacy in the United States? Did they benefit from it, even if they were nice, nice people? And then you in this generation can begin to make choices that reverse that, make choices yeah. that re- begin to repair that. So we repair by becoming part of the solution. And ev- all of us can become part of the solution by choosing to go deeper. That's why we're, why we have, why we're going to be launching Black Fortune Month. Another way to go deeper is by voicing your support for legislation that protects the right, right. of all Americans to vote, like the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act which responds to this current voter suppression. Also the For the People Act, which increases the ability of every American to vote and at the same time protects us against voter suppression and voter fraud. And then last but not least, you can support HR 40. Y'all write that down. HR 40, House Resolution In other words, this is a bill that is going through Congress right now, and all they are saying, it's not even saying we're going to cut checks. What it's saying is we are going to study what reparations for African-Americans would require. Hmm. That's what it's calling for. And do you know that bill has been introduced into Congress for like 40 years running and has not ever been passed. So now is the time. It is time. So join us for the advanced community for Fortune so that you can get a good look at this book so you can help us to promote it when it comes out in February. Join us for Black Fortune Month and there'll be more information about that on the website. You can go to the website at lisasharonharper.com backslash fortune to find out more information. And finally, you can follow the work of organizations that are pushing for legislative and policy change. Organizations like The Color of Change, like Movement for Black Lives, which has an amazing vision of what this all would look like on their website. You should go and read that vision. The Poor People's Campaign at poorpeoplescampaign.org. Sojourners, Red Letter Christians for Social Action. These are all organizations that are pushing for the repair 
of what race broke in the world so you can follow them. Some of the best leaders are inside of those organizations. And our time, I want to, as we wrap it up here, I think I want to say two things. Number one, I want to thank you for your tireless emotional labor that you offer the world. Your work has a cost and you pay it. And I honor that, Lisa. These waters that you choose to wade in every day of your life with such tenacity and faithfulness and obedience and commitment take a real toll. And thank you for being willing to do it. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for just keeping your hand to the plow. It would be so much easier for you if you didn't. If you could just be a barista. You know what I mean? <laughs> Anything. Be a dog walker of your new dog. I would love but that. You choose this work. You choose this work. And it is for the good of so many people. And, and I think that's the second thing that I want to say, which is, what we're talking about here, I'm a white person. And what I know about this work and this conversation is that I believe, I can't help it. I can't, sometimes I don't want to be a faith person, but I just am. And so I really do believe, like, I believe that the truth will set us free and never more true than here as we discuss racial what is broke racial brokenness and racial repair that this truth will set us all free this isn't just this isn't just for the flourishing of the black community it mm -hmm. is for the flourishing of the world that's for and real and when we are when you are free we're all free like this this is how communities heal. This is how families heal. This is how we unleash innovation and creativity and leadership and representation in our country. This is how we restore and mend places that have been broken for so long they've never experienced healing. This is good for everyone. This is good for us all. And that's real. That is real because that's how God made the earth. Um, he made it so that we could all flourish. He loves us each and every one. And so I implore everybody listening, particularly if you're a white person and thinking, what, literally, what skin do I have in the game of reparations? You do. This matters to you. It matters to your kids. It matters to your grandkids. It matters to the city that you live in, the community that you love. This is our collective work. And it is hard. <laughs> it is really hard. One time, Lisa, hmm. I was emailing with Rachel, Rachel Held Evans. Oh, wow. And we were talking about this work in a, in a sort of a battery of injustices that we cared about. And she just sent one line to me in an email, which I've since put on a piece of art in my house. And she just said, Jen, this work is hard. Stay faithful. And I'm like, there it is. There That's it is. It. That's it. The work it. is hard and we stay faithful and you are faithful. And I am so proud of you and I'm so honored to be your friend and to learn from you and listen to you. And so thank you. Thank you for your work. Would you please have the final word here? 
Jen, I'm all right, y'all. We're doing like the gushy lovey thing here. <laughs> you know, I, I mean it. Fan. I am a real fan. And I think, uh, first of all, thank you for all the joy that you bring into the world every day through your humor and your wit and your sass. Seriously, I think that part of the work of the revolutionary work is actually for us to throw off the boxes that white patriarchy, quite honestly, has put us all in. That you're you're supposed to play a role in order to make it work. People of African descent are supposed to bow our heads. We're not supposed to look in the eye. We're supposed to cross on the other side of the street in order to create um, unfettered, pure white space. White women are supposed to be docile, small, not take up too much space, not show emotion. And if they do, only in private. And I think that one of the things that I appreciate about you, Jen, but also about the people who are following you is that you're leading people out from underneath that oppressive source. And it's the same source that oppresses us both. Hmm. It's the same source that oppresses us both. And I think that one of the things that's really important for us to say is that this is good news for all. You have said it. I want to make that, I want to say it again and, and be clear. One of the biggest reasons why this is good news for all is because the power of whiteness, not white men, not white people, but the power of this construct called whiteness, which was created to do one thing, to determine who could rule. That's it. To Who could rule on this land? The power of it is that it dehumanizes. It dehumanizes. It makes people of African descent into one thing. We exist now just to create wealth for white folk. That's it. And if we can't do that, then we're eradicated. We're, we're caged and we're, we're eliminated. But it also does something to the white soul. That's right. It, it disconnects the white soul from the land it actually comes from, from the story it came from, from the people that it came from that they came from. So it makes the white soul dependent on the myth of whiteness, dependent on power in order to feel well, in order to feel like I am well. Well, to repair what race broke in the world also requires repairing the white soul. And that's why I really appreciate the work that you are doing because one of the things that is most prophetic about you is that you really, you have refused to fit into that box. You take up space and it is powerful. Thank you. And as we all now think about how we finish 2021 and move into 2022, let us not be overwhelmed by the bad news. Let us not be overwhelmed and overcome because to be overwhelmed is to believe there is no God. To believe we are, it is, is to believe that those powers, those forces are bigger than God and they are not. <laughs> African-American history is a testimony to that. The fact that slavery is no longer holding my family is a testimony to the reality that God is. So because of that, I know, I know we can get there. Hmm. 
let's just make 2020 the year when we all began to march in lockstep and repair this thing hmm. once for all. Amen. Amen and amen. And amen. I love you, my friend. Oh, I love you too. <laughs> I really do. And I look forward to the next time we get to share space. Yep. And everybody, Me too. thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah. We look forward to the next time we share space with you. Yes, we do. Until then. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC, a consulting group that consults, coaches, trains, and designs experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Say in the know by signing up for our updates, and we promise we will not flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first week of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. <laughs>